Floods of Justice is part of the Tennessee Holler Podcast Network. Follow the Holler for relentless coverage, shining a light on injustices throughout Tennessee. Find them online at tnholler.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at the TN Holler. On this episode of Floods of Justice, we will be talking critical race theory, part one of two. Don't go anywhere. If you have your Bibles, open them to Amos chapter five, and I want to read verse 24. Where the prophet Amos says, I want to see a mighty flood of justice, justice, justice. The Floods of Justice podcast looks at the issues of our day from a biblical perspective without the labels. Led by Reverend Dr. Kevin Riggs, affectionately known as Pastor Kevin or Rev Kev. He is the senior pastor of Franklin Community Church and founder of Franklin Community Development in Franklin, Tennessee. He is also a published author, teacher, professor, activist, abolitionist, husband, father, grandfather, scuba diver, and coffee connoisseur, which is why this podcast is brought to you from the Coffee House at Second and Bridge in downtown Franklin. Let's begin the conversation. Hello, Pastor Kevin. Well, good morning again. Good morning, good morning. It's another rainy Monday. I know. know. We're probably going to be getting more and more of these. (laughs) It's 2020, so it'll just, I don't, I, I feel like, your mm. <laughs> this is the end of 2020 oh uh, yeah i put something up on facebook a couple weekends ago sophie our granddaughter was over at the house and and she went back behind the couch somewhere and she pulled out the old board game life mm-hmm. you know that, there's no she's only she's not even three years old so she can't play it but she opened it up and you know got all the money out and was wanting to play it so yeah. she's acting like she was playing it but then she ended up just throwing everything over the floor so there was just like <laughs> Chaos, and I took a picture of it, and I said, "That's that's life. That's life in yeah. 2020, right there. That's <laughs> 2020 <a> perfect- <laughs> edition, <laughs> right there. It's just it's just waiting. Here we are, October already. Yeah, I um, quit. I'm <laughs> going to put it all back in the box. That's life. <laughs> yeah. So so, but but who knows? Hopefully, hopefully, 2021 will be better as we get closer to the new year. But it's hard to believe. I mean, it's it, we're about into the holiday season, and and it's just been a crazy, crazy year. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm ready for some some better times, but like genuinely better times. I don't want to just ignore, you know. There's today we're going to be talking critical race theory, and uh, and it seems like there's a uh, the opposition to critical race theory kind of subscribes a, a bit to the oh that doesn't really exist. That's that's your reality. But this is what's really going on, and there's like a denial of. What people are, are living every day is, no, my entire life I've dealt with racial issues. With, with that, yeah. And, yeah. Yeah, and from um, in the evangelical world, it's a, uh, you know, it's a four-letter word, critical race theory, and, uh, and which I just, I just, again, it's just one, another one of those things that I just don't understand. You know, why are you just throwing out a whole theory? It's a theory, first of all. Yeah. Which, you know, it's a theory, uh, but yet it does, it does speak to some things that are going on and and there is there is some truth in it but instead because it's quote cultural marxism then out the window it goes because you know uh so yeah so that's what we're going to do this really a two-parter today i just want to introduce i got some just definitions trying to set the the uh the table Uh, when i was in graduate school working on my doctorate a professor said that the, the beginning of wisdom is in the definition of its terms and so that's why i'm kind of really big on on definitions. Okay, what do you mean by this? And so today, hopefully you'll get something out of this, but it's kind of a background. And next week, if all goes well, we're still working on it, have it finalized. But uh, Dr. David Dark, a professor at Belmont University, is going to join us. And and uh, he knows more about this than I do. So he'll he'll be able to, um, you know, clean up our mess and, and maybe make some practical applications. So we're going to lay the groundwork today and then continue it on the next part. Uh, from that, and really, this comes out of if you were watching the news or paying attention. There's, there's so much going on now; you may have forgotten all about it. But a few weeks ago, uh, President Trump made headlines um, by ordering his administration to stop paying for critical race theory diversity training in federal agencies. Do you remember that? It was yeah. Like he was just no more of that, and he called it un-American propaganda. And then he tweeted about it. He said, "This is a quote about critical race theory." He said. This is a sickness that cannot be allowed to continue. We have got to stop this, this theory that's trying to look um, and explain why some things are going on. So if he's calling that 
un-American propaganda. Is is his stuff American propaganda? Well, that, apparently, apparently that, that's what he's so getting. So it's at. American propaganda. Yeah, in his yeah. own. Well, not necessarily. And his so, own words, but yeah, really, a, a couple times over the last several months, not just because of this, but a couple times over the last several months, some some people have asked me to talk about um, critical race theory. Um, so I thought, okay, let's let's. Uh, Let's do it because in some ways it does come out of sociology, which I, it's gone beyond that, but kind of has its roots in sociology. So uh, I guess that's why they asked, you know, what, hey, what do you think about critical race theory? But part of what Trump did was in reaction to a podcast called the 1619 Project. Did you listen to any of that? I haven't yet. No. It's, a, it's a really, really good podcast. Um, and, uh, and so Trump is responding to that. Uh, and then he he came out with what he's calling his 1776 commission, <laughs> so to counteract the 1619. But anyway, the 1619 project it, you can find it. It's a podcast, and and it's only um, eight or eight episodes, I think, something like that. Um, but it's it's one it's won awards. It's you know it, it's it's gotten all kinds of rave reviews. But really, it's a collection of essays on African-American history as well as First Nations people history, uh, but mainly African-American, and it looks at the f- past four centuries, which explores the black community's con- contribution to building um, the United States, mainly through the era of slavery. And so it's kind of like that other not-so-pleasant side of history that we want to whitewash. So it goes way back, 1619, so it goes way back um, and, uh, and traces it up. I watched an interview um, <clears throat> where the, the founder, and I can't remember her name offhand, uh, but she was talking about the significance of 1619. 1620 being Mayflower. So this is, this is dating the year before mm-hmm. Mayflower, saying this was a pivotal moment right here. So yeah. if you go back and you know, read up on this, that's where she gets the 1619. Yeah, and people like Trump and others will call those kind of projects revisionist history, which, you know, it, with, with my little interactions with, some stuff going on with the Civil War history in our own local town. That's why when you're trying to revise history, you're trying to change history. And it's like, well, no, not really. It's not revisionist history. Revisionist history is what's been told yeah. by the whitewashing. But this is it's a real, Yeah, it's like, no, no, we're trying to go back to what actually happened and showing the good, the bad, and the ugly. Because there's, there's the old saying that, you know, the, the victors write the history books. And so they're obviously going to write it. And you can use... Um, you know, the, the revolution to us, the Minutemen, our founding fathers were revolutionaries. But in England, they were terrorists. <laughs> yeah. You know, so it depends on, you know, one person's revolutionary is another person's terrorist. Um, and so a 1619 project, like, look, here's a significant portion of history that has been overlooked. Let's go back. And, uh, and, and the things that happened back then really is what um, have, have set the table to even things that are going on today uh, from that. And so... And so he calls it revisionist history. Um, Trump uh, said that our schools and universities are inundated with critical race theory, a Marxist doctrine holding that America is a wicked and racist nation. And uh, I would say, well, no, maybe not so much wicked, but racist. <laughs> you know, there might be some truth. Might be some truth in both of those, but yeah. at least that last part. And so. Um, well, it kind of depends on who you're asking. Again, it depends on who you're asking. Yeah. And so the 1776 Commission. This is. Um, from the Guardian uh, online magazine, September the 19th, said this, said, and now Trump has announced a national commission to support patriotic education. In other words, a racist propaganda program. Left-wing rioting and mayhem are the direct results of decades of left-wing indoctrination in our schools, is what the president has said. So Trump declared in a speech on the Thursday when this report was given, or this article, he went on to condemn critical race theory in the 1619 Project, the New York Times uh, Pulitzer Prize-winning initiative to reframe American history by placing the consequences of slavery at the center. The crusade, he says this, the crusade against American history is toxic propaganda that will destroy our country, uh, he announced. And per Trump, the only way to save the United States is to revise its history entirely, to, to gloss over violent colonialism and slavery and present America and pretend America does not have a bigoted bone in its body, which is why Trump said he is setting up the 1776 Commission to teach students about the miracle of American history. The miracle of American history. So there's that exceptionalism uh, that comes up again. You know, we, we are better than anyone else. Yeah. You know, God had a, has a special plan for us that he doesn't have for other countries um, and all of that. So... 
that's really where this comes from, this, this attack on the critical race theory. So any comments before we jump into these definitions that I think are important for us? No, no. I, stuff will come up and we'll, okay. we'll address it. As is, but let's, let's lay I, some foundation. All right. Well, since this really comes out of, of sociology, um, I want to mention three orientations in sociology. And I think there may have been a podcast way back when, when I, I went over this, but just uh, to, to go over it again. So when, when, a, when a person looks at society or when a sociologist studies society, there are three ways that they look at it. Just kind of three orientations, worldviews you could call them, or lenses by which you look at what's going on in society. And in reality, all of us, you know, we may see ourselves in all three of these, but there's probably one that we kind of hang on to more than the other ones, and that's just how we look at things. And so, um, and so the, the three orientations are, first of all, positivist sociology, uh, which is also known as structural functional, the structural functional approach to looking at society and studying society. And, uh, and what the positive sociologist says is that society is an orderly system made up of many parts. You've got the economy, you have the family, you have education, you have health care, on and on. You have the many, many different parts of society. And society is structured around those parts or those systems. And each part or each system has a function to play, like our human body is made up of all these different systems, and each part has a function to play. So does uh, society. And um, each part affects the whole. So what happens in the economy is going to affect education. What happens in education is going to affect the economy. So every part has a role to play, and every part is interdependent uh, on the other parts. And so if society is breaking down, you find out which system is dysfunctional. You know, and so there's a lot of crime in an area. Well, people will look at the crime, but they'll also say it's a breakdown of the home. See how that works? So the breakdown of the home, that's the dysfunction. If we could fix the home, then the society would, would become better. So you find out what part of the system is dysfunctional and you try to fix it. Um, and, society, and then if you fix it, society will turn to its positive function. And so there's an objective component to life. And a key word for the positivist is observation. So you observe society, you find out where the dysfunction is and you fix that dysfunction and it'll take care of everything else. All right? Just like, again, in the human body, you know, you fix the one part that's hurting and that, Affects every that uh, will positively affect everything else. Then there's the the interpretive sociology, and this is also known as the symbolic interaction approach. And in this uh, society, is an ongoing interaction as people attach meaning to their behavior in order to construct reality. And so, basically, society or reality is what you make it. So there's really no there's no universals. You know, it's just all interpretive. This is what you make it, and every person's kind of you know life is what you make it, basically. Uh, approach. And so there's a subjective component to life. And so the key word is participation. So if a sociologist was going to study society, if he's a positive, he or she's a positive sociology, they're going to set up studies where they're observing what's going on. If they, if they follow the interpretive approach, they're going to get in there and participate with, uh, with the study, with what's going on. And then the third approach is, the, is called critical sociology. And this is also sometimes called social conflict approach. And this states that society is made up of patterns of inequality. And so there are all those systems, but all those systems, there's inequality in, in the systems. And the reality is that in every society, some categories of people dominate others. So you have the dominant group, not necessarily the majority group, but the dominant group. Uh, for example, in South Africa, the majority group would be black South Africans. But the dominant group, the ones who are in control, would be white South Africans. Um, and apartheid, you know, during apartheid and all that. So it's not necessarily, so majority doesn't necessarily mean dominant. The dominant group would be the group that is kind of in control, that category that makes the key decisions and that category that all of that culture kind of um, surrounds and is geared toward that dominant group. And so society at every level is made up of oppressors and, op and oppressees. And so the systems that make up society are broken and they can't be fixed. There's too much inequality in them. So you can't, you can't fix them. They have to be changed. And so there's a political component to society. And the key word there is activism. Now, I think the majority of people are going to fall into the positive or the critical sociology because they agree in the functions. But the um, positive says, let's find out where the dysfunction is and let's fix it. Whereas the critical sociologist says, no, it can't be fixed. You have to throw that out and, and, and recreate the system. Okay. You know, and so do you fix the police or do you defund the police? You know, and, and so there's just two ways. So, so you, 
everybody sees the problem, but now what's the approach uh, to fixing that problem? Do you fix it or do you just throw it out and start uh, all, all over again? And so this is very tongue-in-cheek, and this is a broad uh, paintbrush I'm going to use to paint this. So just take it for what it's worth. But it's, so this is tongue-in-cheek, but you could almost say Republicans are positivist sociology or sociologists, Democrats are critical sociologists, and libertarians are interpretive sociologists. And the, problem, and the key is the, the one group doesn't even understand how the other group sees the thing. So you're, so you're looking at the same problem, but you're coming at it from your own perspective, and you don't even understand the other person's perspective. Yeah. And so then you get what's called cancel culture, where you just throw it all out and say, well, that person's no good anymore, instead of saying, wait a minute, why are they saying what they're saying? Well, it seems like sociologists have, have gone to school and have a bit of training to understand why they think the way they yeah. do. And then you've got Facebook PhDs <laughs> that, that believe things and they, they honestly don't even know why. And, and that's not necessarily a criticism. That's just a lot of us don't know why we believe what we believe. They, we don't understand that our family, our upbringing, where we grew up in this country, where we fit in that caste system, the financial system, yeah. you know, how that contributed, how past trauma has contributed to the way we think to have a poverty mindset or a wealth mindset. Like there's just a lot of things that we don't understand why they're shaping what the way we view the world, let alone our ability to empathize with somebody else in a different station. Yeah. And again, if I can paint with a broad brush again, um, a person who's in the dominant group is going to more often than not be that positivist structural approach. And so they just see, I don't see all this conflict. I don't see all, I don't see racism, Yeah, you know, uh, because the system is kind of set up. And when that system is operating the way it was set up to operate, it benefits you. And so there's a status quo there. So let's just fix the system so that, you know, I, we, I can continue uh, to receive uh, the advantage. Now, they're not going to think that through, you know, but that's kind of what's going on. Whereas a person who is um, in the minority group or a person who has felt oppression well, they're, they're going to lean more toward that critical approach because they see it. And this is where it all comes into play. So when you talk about critical race theory, you're really talking about um, the, um, uh, the critical approach um, to, to all this. That's kind of the one, the, you know, it's critical sociology when you start talking about critical race theory. And, and according to the critical approach, society has these systems. There's inequality in all of these systems. And so the more categories you fit into that put you more at a disadvantage than the more oppression, the more disadvantaged um, that you feel. And, that, and that's called intersectionality or the intersection theory. That, that basically is an, analysis, an analysis of the interplay of race, class, and gender, um, usually resulting in multiple dimensions of disadvantage. So in our country, you know, we were founded on what we call WASP, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. So, and then you could add male to that because we're, we have been patriarchal. Um, and so if you're a male and you're white and you're Anglo-Saxon, um, which means now it could just be you're from Europe, but um, in history it'd be England. And then Protestant is your religion. And so if you're a male and you're white and you're a Protestant um, and, you're, and you're of European descent, well then that's four categories and in every one of those categories or five categories in every one of those categories, you are at the advantage because the culture you live in was developed by those people. And so you have the advantage. The more categories you fit into that are at the disadvantage, so if you're black, and really in a weird kind of way in our society, on the stratification scale, a black male would be lower than a black female. Uh, but if you're black or brown, um, you're, you're a minority, um, and you're... Um, obviously not from Europe, you're from Africa or you're from, um, you know, Central American country, um, and you're not Protestant, you're, you're Catholic or you're Muslim or you're Buddhist, um, then all those things, then you're going to feel disadvantaged in every one of those areas. And so the more of those, the more categories you fit into that are not part of the dominant group, the more disadvantaged that you are. So it's the intersectionality. And so critical race theory comes into play and says, look, the primary disadvantage we have in our country is race. And by race, they're really talking about black, white. You can say black, brown, and white, but black, white. So that's the primary place of oppression. 
Um, and so you and look they're at acknowledging that race was, is a created barrier. It's uh, a social construct. There's, yeah. there's nothing, you know, there, there's the, there's more biological differences in the color of people's eyes than there is in the color of people's skin. Yeah. And so race is a socially constructed thing anyway. Um, it has no, it has nothing to do with biology. It has to do with, you know, the pigment on your skin, but there's no, you know, there's no, we're all, we all bleed the same underneath. And so out of all the differences and, and race is usually defined by, at least in history, race has been defined by the color of your skin, the texture of your hair and the slant of your eyes. Um, and most of the time, what we call race is really ethnicity okay. most of the time. But, uh, but strictly speaking, biologically speaking, race has been, it's a social construct that's defined by these biological differences in color of skin, uh, texture of hair, and, and uh, slant of the eyes. Um, and so, and there's only three races, um, oh, let me Caucasian, and then it was called, at least in the old days of science, Negroid, and then um, Mongoloid. Everything else is ethnicity. So on that, so like if you go fill out an application and it says African American, African American, strictly speaking, is an this is an ethnicity. You, you know, because you added the word American to it. Right. You know, so are you know are you black, are you white, or are you Asian? Those would be the three racial groups. But are you Middle Eastern, which is considered Asian, but it's ethnic? You know, and and. Most of the struggle around the world has been with ethnicity. So you, had, so you have countries that are called ethnic cleansing. The people are the same race, but the dominant group is of this ethnic group, and so they try to wipe out the other ethnic group, even though racially they're the same. The United States is unique in its history uh, because it is race. And it's, it's like we're, we're the only country in the world who had slavery based primarily and solely on race, whereas around the world it was, it was ethnic yeah. differences. And scientifically, it's been proven that there is absolutely no difference. There is no greater intelligence or potential <laughs> in any group of people based on color of skin. Absolutely. Right? right. But historically, white males in America have, have purported theories of inferiority in groups. This group of people are, are you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? have a propensity for this type of behavior or a laziness here or the, and it's completely false completely, lies it's completely made false. up yeah and it becomes hidden and then, as and then what happens science. is yeah and if we're not careful then we jump into interpretive sociology because now it's just about what i think yeah well this is what i think i'm just interpreting this as as that and it's really not based on any on any on any science and so basically then critical race theory comes out of this uh, conflict theory of sociology but yet it's emphasizing race, that race in our country, race is at um, the center of all the inequalities, be it education, be it healthcare, uh, be it, um, uh, you know, the stratification, uh, all those things, everything goes back to race. And so from the dominant perspective, we say quit playing the race card. But a person who is, is in that minority group will say, well, well everything is about race. It's almost like take your own advice. You're playing the race card. Yeah, by saying as quit white playing. people. Yeah, so everything <laughs> is about race uh, from that, and so that, and so, and so you got to understand that that, and the more disadvantage a person has, the more likely they are to see the disadvantage that other people have. You know, and so if I'm already disadvantaged, like right now, as a, a white person in the dominant group, I may not be able to understand all these disadvantages. But if something, God forbid, were to happen and I was in a car accident and I become permanently disabled and I'm in a wheelchair, I learn very, very quickly that I'm at a disadvantage because these buildings don't have, they have steps, they don't have ramps. They, and so all of a sudden, once I start seeing the disadvantage in my life, then I start to see the disadvantage in other people's life based on whatever category it is. But the biggest disadvantage because of the history of our country is race. And so that's, and so critical race theory um, is, is coming out of out and that's of that. a relatively modern. It was born in the eighties, right? It was, it was back in the seventies is 70s. when it was is, is when it was. Um, can't remember who it was, but when it was kind of defined as critical race theory. I mean, there's always been people looking at um, looking at society through this conflict perspective, right? But then it took on a form. But it's of, really looking yes. at society and the systems that we have created and live in today, but are that are heavily 
and influenced by race from the very institution of our country as well. Yeah, and so critical race theory is the view that the law and the legal institutions and all the systems in society are racist and race itself, um, instead of any type of biological thing, it's race itself uh, that, is, that is making the difference between advantages and disadvantages. Um, and so racial inequality emerges um, from in society, it emerges in economics, it emerges in, in healthcare, it emerges in education. Whatever system you want to name in, in our country, you can find elements of inequality based on class, gender, and everything else, but you can for sure find elements of inequality based solely on race yeah. uh, you know, from that. And so you have the critical race, and as a result, that keeps the people who fit in that category, so now we're talking about in race, it keeps people um, at the disadvantages, it keeps them in poverty, it keeps them... Um, you know, the, the society oppresses that group, even though we may not see that we're oppressing that group. If you're in that group, you see how the oppression is working. If you're not in that group, you have a hard time uh, seeing that uh, from that. And that's kind of one of the, the key tenets of critical race theory is the oppressed are the ones who can effectively define the oppression, not the oppressor, right? And, and that's kind of a big point of conflict between, you know, well, the oppressed would, yeah, the oppressed define what's oppressive, not the oppressed. Yes. Right, right. So, yeah. the, you know, the, the, the folks in the white camp that would say, oh, no, there is no racism in, country or in, in this country, or you're playing the race card, or you always make it about race, who, oh, I don't see it, I'm colorblind, blah, 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 all that stuff. It's not the white voice that gets to, dis, to decide or define the oppression or the racism and and whatever we say or do that we may claim, I didn't mean that in a racist way, intent doesn't matter when it comes to what was the effect, how it was received, how it was perceived by the oppressee. Yeah, and so, uh, yeah, and so as, if I'm part of that dominant group, now I may not have, I, you know, like personally, I may not have oppressed somebody. But if I can get to the place where I understand that the way our society was set up, then I, I'm at the advantage um, because of the of the color of the, my skin and my gender, and I was born middle class instead of lower class, so that's all intersectionality. When all those things come together, and they're all to my advantage, then then you know it, if I can see that, then when somebody comes to me and says I'm being oppressed, instead of saying Oh no, you're not. I need to listen. What do you mean you're being oppressed? You know, take time to understand exactly what it is they're talking about, and if you can understand what they're talking about then you can see, okay, there is truth in what they are saying. I have never thought about that before. But there is truth um, in, in that. And then you can go about trying to, to make the changes and make the differences um, or, or whatever it may be. But the problem is the moment we start hearing oppressing, we get, up, we get defensive. Okay, and that's called white fragility. Yeah. <laughs> Where the moment somebody points out that my race is at the advantage... I want to defend myself. No, I'm not. I grew up poor, is what people will say. Or no, you know, that's not how it was. And, and we immediately get defensive. Like, for example, today, if somebody says black lives matters, somebody will very, very quickly will say, well, all lives matters. But if somebody says blue lives matters, nobody quickly says, well, all lives matters. Yeah. You know, and so they're showing their fragility because they feel like somehow or another, by saying black lives matter, then you're dominant race is being attacked on some level. And if and you it, haven't like realized this, nobody was born blue. Yeah. So the, the whole argument of, well, blue lives matter. Blue lives were a choice. It's a career. It's a career. Yeah. It, and those who are born black have lived with this their entire and will for the rest of yeah. their life. And it's not equator. It's not, it's oranges and apples. Yeah. But if somebody life. says blue lives matter, that doesn't offend. That doesn't make me as a white person Want right. to def wait, get defensive. Yeah. But if somebody says Black Lives Matter, now there's wait, what? What? My life matters too. But yeah. no, you know. So, so that that's white fragility. And, and here's a definition of white fragility given by Robin DiAngelo, who wrote the book titled White Fragility. Right. All right. She described it this way: In a nutshell, white fragility is the defensive reaction so many white people have when our racial worldviews, positions, or advantages are questioned or challenged. And so, my challenge to you, if you're in the dominant group is the next time somebody starts talking about racial issues with you, do your best not to get defensive, but just sit with the uncomfortableness and listen. And just listen. And, and, and make yourself be uncomfortable. And if, if they're, 
accusing you of things that you know you did not do, just listen. You know, and, and sit and sit through that instead of getting really, really uh, upset and then, you know, taking your ball and going home, so to speak. Yeah. Which is really what white privilege is. You know, white privilege is inherent advantages possessed by a white person on the basis of their race in a society um, characterized by racial inequality and injustice. And so, um, <clears throat> you know, I, there's all kinds of illustrations I could give, uh, but really, you know, if you don't accept white privilege, no illustration works. Um, and if you and if you accept white privilege, you see you see examples of it everywhere. But listen to me, if you want to, if a person if if a person in a dominant group wants to make any effort to heal things racially, racially then, then you have to accept that, that there is a, such a thing as, as white privilege. There, there are things, um, it doesn't mean that I don't work hard. It doesn't mean that you have to, that a white person can't grow up poor. Um, but, you know, there's a, there, was an there was a sociologist back in the 60s, I think, who used to talk about this stuff, and she, and she would go into a room of mixed people and, uh, um, and, and, and with white people say, to all the white people there, raise your hands if any of you would rather be black. And of course, no, you know, no one would raise every once in a while. Maybe somebody trying to make a point would. Chris Rock in his comedy routine <laughs> yeah. says, you know, yeah. nobody would, I, nobody would switch, switch places with me and I'm rich. Yeah. And but, like, but if it's, you know, raise your hands, if you wish you were white, well then people, people are going to have a more tendency to, and so that just, and now there's nothing I did now. I, I reject white guilt personally, because I, I can't control the color of my skin anymore than anybody else. Right. And so if I feel guilty for being, I need to find out why am I feeling, that's a false guilt. So then, okay, why is it that I feel this way and then work on those issues? You know, and so what it comes back to, to me is, okay, if I have this position of privilege, the Bible says, um, too much who has been given, much is expected. And so if I have been given this position of privilege, then how do I steward that? How do I make sure that I use it to the glory of God uh, and in uplifting people who, who don't have the same advantages? That's what we got to speak up for the people in the margins of society. You know, so I have a voice. I don't need to speak for that person. I need to speak with them. You know, because they have their own voice. Yeah. But how can I walk with you know my presence, um, because of the color of my skin, my presence will will make a difference. It could in a police situation. It could diffuse things, which I've had to do here in our own community. You know, somebody call me. There's something going on, and and it's a white black thing with officers involved, and then and then because people know me, when I things just kind of deescalate. You know, um, and and uh, part of that's because I'm a minister. I mean, there's all kinds of reason, but on one level, part of it is because well, that's you know that person's white. They're going to be treated differently from that, and so and so that's uh, white. That's white privilege. At the very least, white privilege means that the the rules, the hidden rules, all the rules in this culture uh, were um, made by people who were like me, and so I don't have to learn. You know, I, I tell people. Um, if you're white in our society, you do not necessarily have to have any serious interaction with a person of color unless you choose to, and your life will be, it won't be rich, I don't think, but you're, yeah. you, you know, you could live your life, have a job, make, take care of your family, and never have any serious interaction with the minority. But if you're a minority, you're going to have a very, time, a very hard time, quote, succeeding in society if you don't learn how to interact with the dominant, with the white person. And so that in and of itself is a disadvantage to them uh, and an advantage to me from that. Um, and so, you know, just sit with that for a while if that makes you uncomfortable uh, and recognize that white privilege doesn't mean that your life is easy. It just means that with all the other difficulties in your life, the color of your skin wasn't one reason, wasn't a reason why you, you had a hard time. Yeah. You know, there are other reasons why you may have, but the color of your skin was not a reason why. Whereas for other people, the color of their skin has caused certain hardships uh, for that. The color uh, of their skin, <clears throat> the type of their hair, their name, their the name. sound of their name. Yeah, their like, name, yeah. You know, it, it doesn't have to be even be in person. It's your resume that gets submitted. Yeah. So. Yeah, and there's been lots of studies about that, the names you put on resumes or the names you put on uh, rental applications. Yeah. And if it's a white-sounding name, um, but if it's an ethnic-sounding name, regardless of what that ethnic, I mean, you know, you put... Muhammad down as your name, there's going to be a lot of people you're not going to get any farther than that. Now that's, and that's wrong. That's, yeah. you know, but that, and so a critical race theory will look at that, that there's disadvantages in every one of our systems 
based on this. Now, <clears throat> the reason it gets associated with Marxism <clears throat> is because Marx, <clears throat> Karl Marx looked at inequality, but he looked at it based primarily on economics. So, so he didn't look at it based on race. But so cultural Marxism is when you start looking at inequality everywhere. People say, well, now you're being a Marxist. Um, and so because Karl Marx looked at the economy and basically said there's two people, there's two groups of people in the economy, the, the upper class and the lower class, no middle class. Um, and, uh, and it has to do with your means of production. So if you own the means of production, so if you own the business, then you're of the upper class or the uh, bourgeoisie, he called it. And if you hire yourself out to work for that person, then you're the working class, um, and that was the proletariats. And so it had to do with your means of production. Um, and, so if, and so the way that society was set up, if you're part of the capitalist class, things are to your benefit. The tax rules are written in such a way that you can hide all your money and only pay $750 in taxes. Mm. But that doesn't happen in our country. But that working class person... You know, I, I heard, I heard um, with, with what was going on with that, the average per family in the United States pays about $12,000 a year in, in income tax, and, and the medium income is 60-something thousand a year. Yeah. You know, and so that, um, and like, for example, when Mitt Romney um, was running um, for president, he got in trouble or took a lot of heat because there was one year he didn't pay a lot of taxes. And um, now there were other years he paid lots of taxes. And so I, um, and so what happened is like, you know, if I, if I make a million dollars this year, <clears throat> I'm going to be taxed at a very high rate unless I can figure out a way to, high, you know, but I'm going to be taxed at a high rate. If I just, if, but so if I invest that million dollars or that $600,000 that's left after I pay my taxes and then next year I don't work at all, then my only income, even though I'm still rich, my only income is on the interest of that 600000 Now, when I worked, my tax rate was 40% on that money, but the interest rate on the um, investment is like 10%. And so the tax laws are, are written to such uh, that, that as a wealthy person, the tax laws are written to my benefit. I can find a way around it and do it legally um, to pay as little taxes as possible. But from the working class, well, you just got you just got to pay what you pay. So tax less for the money you didn't work for. Yeah, as as much as the money that you yeah. did work. Yeah, yeah, and so and so Karl Marx was saying all the economy is set up in that in that direction. So the business, the owner of the business, is always going to make more money than the person who's working in the business, always. Now, what Marx was saying was that eventually there would be a revolution because there's always more working class than uh, than a capitalist class. And so you, you need to do something now to avoid, because if that revolution happens, the entire economy collapses. So you got to do something now to fix that. We've never in the United States had that revolution yet. And part of that, and part of the reasoning is we allow everyone to, you know, if you've got a retirement plan, if you have a retirement plan, it's in the stock market, which means you're a capitalist. So you're part, you own a business or you own part of a business. And so that's, but in our country, the gap between the wealthy and the poor is getting farther and farther and farther apart. So Karl Marx was pointing, he was a conflict sociologist, so he was pointing to, to inequality in the economy. And so now anytime somebody starts pointing out inequality and things ought to be, you've got to make things more fair, you're automatically called a socialist, Marxist, um, or communist. I mean, just right away. And what's interesting is in his lifetime before he died, because his principles, Marx's principles had been taken in a direction he didn't want them to go, Karl Marx said, I am not a Marxist. <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, and so, uh, and so he was trying to adapt. But since Karl Marx is an atheist, now you have whether well, we can't listen to an atheist on anything. And so then you have the religious community coming in um, and just denying everything that he has said uh, because of his um, a disbelief in God. Now that that is a huge oversimplification, but those are just some basic definitions um, that you when we talk about critical race theory. And we'll talk about it more next time. Um, but those are some things we have to, uh, you know, have to keep in mind that it, it's it's one approach to sociology, and it's a theory. And so it's how people see things, and just to throw it all out because it's associated with Marxist, uh, just just doesn't make any sense. And we'll talk about that a little bit after the break. Sure, sure. We'll be right back. 
The Floods of Justice podcast is brought to you by the Coffee House at Second and Bridge. Since 1904, they have stood at the corner of Second and Bridge Street in the heart of downtown Franklin. Their house-made menu items are crafted with care and love. Baked goods are made from scratch each morning, and specialty coffee is always ground and brewed fresh. So come on down, wander the rooms, join us at the coffee bar, and find a space to enjoy the food, the drink, and maybe even a recording of the Floods of Justice podcast. Welcome back to our discussion on Floods of Justice about critical race theory. We've been going over some uh, foundational definitions and terms. Uh, Now we kind of want to take all this and hold it up to that biblical lens. What does the Bible have to say about this? Pastor Kevin. All right. And so, again, critical race theory has been condemned by many uh, in the evangelical movement, uh, mainly because it's considered Marxist, and Karl Marx was an atheist, and so because he was an atheist, he had nothing good to say, which goes against... To me, everything the Bible teaches, because the Bible teaches all truth is God's truth. Yeah. So even if an atheist says it, if it's true, it's true. You know, and uh, you have examples in Scripture. The Apostle Paul would be one example where he quoted from pagan poetry people in his, in his letters. Yeah. You know, so if something is true, it doesn't matter who says it. Well, I read something about in, the, in the Jewish tradition that there was, there was a huge value just placed on wisdom. didn't matter where yeah. it came from. Like different traditions and cultures, yeah. there was you know, and Proverbs was is kind of a, a collection of wisdom. Yeah, well, Plato and Aristotle would not have been Christian. Yeah, you know, um, but uh, in the West, almost everything we do can be traced back to that philosophy, to their philosophies, one way or another. And I've long since forgotten it. But two, so you have Plato and Aristotle as the two kind of big philosophers in in Western culture. And within Western Christianity, two key figures are um, Augustine and Aquinas, um, and, uh, uh, and as key theologians in shaping the church. And, and I've long since forgotten this, but, but one of them is either Aquinas or Aristotle. I think, I mean, Aquinas or Augustine, one is Aristotelian in his thinking, and the other is Platonic. Okay. And so the two major theological figures would base a lot of their theology is based on either Aristotle or, or, or Plato, at least their philosophy of how they saw things. You know, so to unravel, if you really want to get back to true Christianity, you've got to unravel all of that, yeah. um, but, which is <laughs> very, very difficult to do. Um, you know, but, but anyway, that, that's a little bit off. But all truth is God's truth, regardless of who, regardless of who said it. And so there, there is truth in the fact that in every culture there's an oppressed and oppressee and the more, and it's based on categories. It's not based on anything biological. It's based on categories, be it race or economics or, or gender. Uh, that's just the way it is. And the more those categories that you fit in that are at the disadvantage, the more disadvantaged, the more oppressed you will be. The more those categories you fit in that are advantaged, the more uh, advantaged you will be. You know. And so, um, and so to throw it all out. Now, again, people are going to hear this and say Kevin's a Marxist. Well. You can come in whatever you want to. This is without labels, but truth is truth, you know, regardless of what it is. In 2019, Southern Baptist Convention uh, passed a resolution about critical race theory. They've been arguing about it for a while, and to their credit, they tried to find a middle ground. And, of course, you know, the thing is when you straddle the fence, you get shot at from both sides from that. But they did pass a resolution, um, and the resolution in part stated this, be it resolved that critical race theory and intersectionality should only be employed as analytical tools subordinate to Scripture. And I have no problem with that. So I think they did a good line of saying, look, this is just one of many theories. I mean, to me, part of wisdom would be, okay, how can I look at this situation from a, a positive perspective? How can I look at it from an interpretive perspective? How can I look at it from a critical perspective? To be able to look at it from all three angles. Uh, you know, and so in, in essence, that's what, so they didn't, they didn't, throw critical race theory out. They just said, but ultimately Scripture is our guide, so it has to fall in line uh, with Scripture. Um, and uh, so what does the Bible say? And, and again, if you read the Bible and you read the prophets, it seems to me that God's Word points out inequality over and over again and says to the people of God, speak up for the people who are being oppressed. I mean, it seems to be what it says, you know. 
For example, here's just, uh, here's just I, I, I've got a lot of scriptures. I'm just, I'm just going to read and we'll just kind of make a comment. But this all is, you know, what does the Bible say about this? Well, Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 1 and verse 4. Uh, Solomon says, again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of the oppressors, and they have no comforter. And I saw that all labor and all achievement spring from man's envy of his neighbor. This, too, is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. And so Solomon said, I see it. And Solomon was indefinitely in a position of power. <laughs> he said, I see it. That there's the oppressed and the oppressee, and everything is always on the side of the oppressor. That's pretty telling, though, that someone of that wealth and, and age and status is able to empathize to that level. Yeah, he had wisdom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. good point. Um, James chapter 1, verse 27, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So even in the New Testament, it's, Look out for people who are oppressed. You have to look out for people who are suffering. You know, immediately my evangelical friends will be, yeah, and, and what God says by that is you have to do it voluntarily. It can't be by, by force from the government. And I'm like, okay, tell that to all the kings in the Old Testament that the prophets were saying, your government has not taken care of the people, and so God's going to judge you, Yeah, you know. Uh, from that, James chapter 2, verses 5 through 6 says, Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? So again, the Bible says this is not how it should be. You, you, you are, you're taking advantage of, each other, of people. So you have to speak out against that. And then the moment you speak out against that, and you say that it's this particular category of people and it's this racial group of people who are being exploited. Well, that's critical race theory. That's Marxist. We can't believe that as Christian. Wait a minute. Yeah. No, everything's going to be subjected to God's word, but God's word seems to make it clear that there's oppressed and oppressors, and God is always on the side of the oppressed. Well, it sounds like you know there's a criticism from the, from the wealthy Christian capitalist side that would say, no, no, you got to work hard for what you get. And if you work hard, you get what you earn. And, and yet there's a, it seems like a very clear uh, description in the Bible that, that God is in favor of a reversal, a reversal that, it, that. that it will happen and that it's okay. And that it is God ordained that there will be a reversal of, of fortune. And yeah, a, a key value in a capitalistic society is meritocracy that you get what you earn merit merit. So it's based on merit. We live in Music City. Yeah. I think we all know some really, 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 really excellent singers and musicians who are still waiting tables. Oh, yeah. And they're working hard, and they sing better and sound better than people on the radio. It's more than merit. Yeah. You know, it's, it's like, okay you, okay, you have to work hard, but there, are, there is more than hard work um, that oftentimes gets a person, quote, unquote, success. You know, from that. And so a meritocracy is not, um, a, you know, a meritocracy will also say society pays people more whose jobs are more important for society as a whole. So a medical doctor will make more than the person who works at the grocery store. But one thing we've learned during the pandemic is maybe that's not quite. Yeah. <laughs> that, well, you look at reality TV. That, yeah, that essential worker is pretty important to society. Yeah. The most, my, my argument is probably the most important people in society, especially if you live in a city, the most important job and the most important people in society are garbage collectors. Just let them not pick up garbage for a week, mm -hmm. citywide. How so true. based on meritocracy, the garbage collector should be the most paid, the highest paid person in our society. Yeah. If you base it totally on merit and who, and whose job, whose function, that's this, this is the system, the positivist, the structural functional, whose job has the most important function in society? You see, and we, we want to say the doctor, the lawyer, the politician, apparently athletes <laughs> mm -hmm. in our society, and not the teacher, um, the, uh, uh, the janitor, and, and garbage collector. You know, so we, we have this stratification based on meritocracy that is way messed up, not even close to being accurate. Um, in, um, in early Rome, Plato and Aristotle's day, the most the wealthiest people were the philosophers and the teachers. 
they were the ones who made the most money wow. in, in that day. How far we've come yeah. uh, from that, all right? Uh, Philippians, and, and I, I intentionally chose most of these verses to be from the New Testament because people say, if, if you quote from the Old, well, that's the Old Testament. It's not, no, no, no. Jesus, the New Testament talks a lot about this too. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. You know, so if I'm a person who finds himself in a position of privilege, how do I live that out? Do unto others what you'd have them do unto you. You know, when I walk into a store, people don't follow me around thinking I'm going to steal something. I want that for everybody else also. So if I see that happening, wait a minute, I guess that's not right. Yeah. You know, treat other people that way. Galatians 3, 28, 3, Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, uh, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And then here is the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, and this is from the message version of the Bible. Um, doom. That's the word, doom, doom to you who legislate evil, who make laws that make victims, laws that make misery for the poor, that rob my destitute people of dignity, exploiting defenseless widows, taking advantage of homeless children. What will you have to say on judgment day when doomsday arrives out of the blue? Who will you get to help you? What good will your money do you? A sorry sight. You'll be then huddled with the prisoners or just some corpses stacked in the street. Even after all this, God is still angry, his fists still raised, ready to hit them again for exploiting and not taking care of the vulnerable people in your society. You know, so again, it seems like and there's a lot, there's a lot of verses that a lot of places in the Bible that talk about. Treat the immigrant a certain way because you were an immigrant yourself. You know, treat the slave a certain way because you were a slave in Egypt. I, you know, it, like it seems to be um, that the Bible talks a lot about inequality and um, part of bringing the kingdom of God into existence is that we are to, we are to fight for equality and fight against inequality. And in our culture, a large amount of our inequality um, is, um, is based on race. Um, and, uh, and that, that's a sin. That's our nation's first sin, as Jim Wallace says in his book, or it's our, our original sin is what he calls it uh, from that. So, so anyway, that's just an overview. Um, hopefully you got something out of that. <laughs> Set the stage um, uh, for a, a theologian to come in next week and talk about it a little bit more. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, thank you for joining us on this episode of Floods of, du Floods of Justice. Like we said, this is part one of two on critical race theory. Be sure to, to stay tuned for the next episode um, with our guest, uh, Professor from Belmont, Dr. David Dark. We'll see you on the next episode. Bye. The Floods of Justice podcast looks at the issues of our day from a biblical perspective without the labels. Join the conversation online at floodsofjustice.com or find the Reverend Dr. Kevin Riggs on Twitter at Riggs underscore Kevin. Floods of Justice is part of the Tennessee Holler podcast network. Follow The Holler for relentless coverage, shining a light on injustices throughout Tennessee. Find them online at tnholler.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at the TN Holler.